isn't that the way of the world these days? A lot of other people have done all the work, and somebody else takes the credit and well, makes you, it all pretty. When you consider they have been writing articles about C Lab since the 1960s, yes, there's a few of them out there. There is true. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. on the cover I picked it up I was like oh I gotta get this the Saturday evening post from September 1964 pretty cool cool. yeah Yeah. pretty cool cover story of Sea Lab Sea Lab Diver at 32 Fathoms why they had to say 32 Fathoms so that the average layperson would be like what the he must be Sea Lab diver at well, this ain't nothing. Twenty three four thousand four hundred ninety inches. <laughs> <laughs> Thirty two fathoms ain't shit because we're there about to go this week. Hundred fathoms. They're going to a hundred fathoms. Hundred fathoms. Dang, son. Some serious business, and it doesn't end well. No, at a hundred fathoms, nothing ends well. <laughs> Nothing's going to end well. <laughs> And it didn't, especially for old Aquanaut Barry Cannon, who uh, unfortunately perished on Sea Lab 3. I'm curious. Now you have my curiosity peaked. Did he get the, did he order the chicken instead of the fish? <laughs> hey everybody, welcome back to the Great Die Podcast. Your Sea Lab and underwater dwelling hosts. Old Jamesy. And old Brando. Old Brando. I thought we were going to work on new... Um, we were, but it's one of those things. It has to come naturally. It does. You can't just force it. No, it's got to come out. It's got to come from the heart. It's got to come from the gills. We're get, getting some good response about this little C-Lab. People liking it, eh? Yeah. It's it, good. It, I think it's a cool topic. We're surprising yeah. them. They, they, they think that we're actually uh, rather astute in our fact-finding, research-gathering, um, almost like we know what the hell we're doing here. Well, I somebody else actually researched and gathered all the facts, and we, we're just reading an article that they researched <laughs> and did. <laughs> but, hey. We've, been, uh, we've had to do a little bit of research to get this thing together, to present it in a new, interesting way. By we, you mean you. And Tiffany. (laughs) Our head fictional research assistant, Tiffany, has been hard at work gathering topics. So in um, 
in my search for more information on, on C-Lab 3, I came across some pretty cool stuff about how impressive this building was. Building? You mean the, the C-Lab itself? Yeah. This Is it a building or is it a vehicle? Or is it permanently mounted to the floor? No, they retrieved it. Okay. Well, if we look at here, some of these old Navy archive photos of it. I mean, that's this is that beast being put on board the ship yeah. via crane. Yeah, it's pretty big. But here, here's that. Uh, here it is. There, right. So basically, it was they pulled Sea Lab Two up. Okay. After that successful mission, and they gave it a clean up, a little paint job, and added a bunch of stuff to it, like these some additional rooms. At the ends, okay. At the ends of it. What is this cool artist rendering of it with, you know, showing the, the cutaway that they were living in all the way from underneath where the, the entrance hatch is down at the bottom, the floor, the decking, divers station areas, workbenches, laboratory area, all the way to the, the top of it where the ballast tanks were, the power panel, refrigerator head, the berths, living areas, viewing areas, observation rooms. Pretty cool stuff. And good old Tuffy, the uh, support porpoise, swimming around. Tuffy, the support porpoise. Is he a and dolphin it, or porpoise? He's a porpoise. He's eh? a porpoise. Damn. Now... Dolphins are up in arms about that. They learned a little bit when they when they had that little uh, sea lion come down and join them in uh, in Sea Lab Two, that they actually trained a sea lion. Right. For Sea Lab Three, sea lion was named Gimpy. Gimpy oh, the Gimpy. sea lion. Gimpy and Tuffy were helping out. Pretty amazing. Gimpy had the ability to dive all the way to the bottom, six hundred feet, in about thirty seconds. It's pretty good. Pretty impressive. It's not bad. So in October of 1968, about a half a year prior to the actual launching of Sea Lab 3, there was an article written in Skin Diver magazine by Owen Lee talking about how this was going to be an outpost of civilization in our last frontier. And this really looked at how amazing and awesome Sea Lab was going to be, what they were looking to do. Owen starts off by saying that 200 years ago, our pioneer forefathers braved the rigors of the Wild West to conquer and colonize a new frontier. By so doing, they opened the doors to vast stores of natural wealth that benefit the entire world. Today, a new breed of pioneer carries on in their finest tradition in what must be one of the great adventures of our day, trading coonskin cap and flintlock rifle for diving suits and breathing devices they have established an outpost of civilization on the floor of the sea. Thus, they are opening the doors to a new frontier that is even larger and richer. In fact, it contains more wealth than all the continents of land combined. The vision of the sea. These guys a are... Vast, <laughs> a vast new world of riches. To exploit. <laughs> It's a different viewpoint than would be accepted today because everything was, how can we exploit this environment? Conquest and exploitation was was the the buzzwords of... It still is, but they can't say it. Right. I mean, 
There's nothing that's changed. Man is here to <laughs> take, and take everything <laughs> and use it to, to better our species. But It's better to just ignore it and play on your iPhone <laughs> exactly. than, it is, than it is to really think about where all the stuff came mm-hmm. from to get you that iPhone in your hand. Oh, yeah. And not, not just the iPhone, but everything else you enjoy that you think is uh you know so friendly eco-friendly yeah anyway anyway do i sound bitter like these a bitter are the old aquana- man <laughs> these are the aquanauts of sea lab three a 57 foot steel habitat located off the coast of southern california in five teams compromising eight men each the 54 aquanauts including four as alternates and as backup surface support divers will inhabit C-Lab 3 for a total of 60 days at depths of up to 600 feet under the direction of Scott Carpenter, chief of the underwater operations. Each team has scheduled duties to perform outside of the habitat. These include experiments in oceanography and physiology, deep water salvage and construction, underwater engineering and technology, and search and recovery. Assisting them in these operations are two teams of specially trained porpoises and sea lions. The overall objective is to demonstrate man's growing ability to colonize and exploit the extreme depths of the continental shelves. Wow. Now, what year was this again? Just to reiterate. 68. So just a few years after. So they're down there thinking, man, we've got some tons of prime real estate down here that if if we can get this shit figured out, you'd be millionaires. (laughs) A million will be thousandaires. Oh, you have ocean front living? We've got ocean bottom ocean, living. Yes. So they were also looking at all of the minerals that were going to be able to be extracted from the seafloor and how the, the seafloor right. just re- receives um, you know, billions of times more deposits of minerals than, than any riverbed is going to deliver. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of area. Considering that the majority of the planet is covered by water. Owen Lee says the floor of the shelves is often littered with millions of tons of phosphate rock, a valuable fertilizer. Beneath the floor are vast deposits of gravel, tin, platinum, gold, coal, sulfur, and other minerals. Is there any plastic that we could use? (laughs) (laughs) Almost 20% of the world's petroleum production already comes from the continental shelves. This makes them the richest source of mineral wealth in the world. In addition, most shelves are so shallow that sunlight can penetrate to the bottom. It is in these shallow depths, miracle called photosynthesis. This is a vital process by which plants obtain nourishment and revitalize the oxygen supply in our atmosphere. Consequently, all useful sea plants proliferate there. So do the marine creatures that feed upon them and the creatures that feed upon these creatures. Thus, the continental shelves comprise a rich source of protein food to where the sun and sea conspire to perform that life-giving, feed-our-world's exploding population. Add to these the trapped sources of energy, drugs, fresh water, and other life essentials, you can get some inkling of their potential worth. Where did you find that article? This was a skin diver. Oh, okay. So remember in C-Lab 2, they had three teams of 11 divers each, I think it was. And they were down there. The longest guy was down there 30 days in a row, basically. It was a 45-day venture. This time they're going for 60 days. And he 
they talk briefly about the 54 different aquanauts that are going to be taking part in this, but mentions that there's still the four majors that are there, the four major, not, rank, uh, not majors major. as rank, but uh, the four, the major, most indispensable, most important names are that of good old Papa Topside, George Captain Bond. George Bond, Captain Walter Mazone, Commander Jack Tomsky, and Commander Scott Carpenter of the U.S. Navy. It was the success of C-Lab 1 that convinced the Navy to stop treading water, whereas C-Lab 1 was largely, as a result of Captain Bond's personal and sometimes unauthorized efforts, the offices of Naval Research now gave him official sanction. New funds and personnel were made available for Bond to mount a full-scale man-in-the-sea project. On August 10th, 1965, the first 10-man team took up residence in Sea Lab 2, a brand-new habitat that measured 12 feet in diameter by 57 feet long. Planted 205 feet deep on the edge of Scripps Canyon near La Jolla, California. So remember, um, originally, they gave... Um, $200,000 to do C-Lab 1 okay. was the budget. And then on C-Lab 2, they ended up giving them $2 million. Wow. So a huge increase. Inflation. And I believe that jumped up to $10 million roughly on C-Lab 3, which was still a drop in the bucket compared to like the billions that NASA was getting at the time. Fucking NASA. <laughs> they, and they even had their own pool. Actually, yeah. they use our pool. Yeah. Aren't they using our pool? No, I say ours, diver's pool. Fucking NASA. Eight men at a time were working out of a trailer-like facilities of C-Lab 3 at planned depths exceeding 600 feet. Although the habitat is basically the same as C-Lab 2, a steel cylinder 12 feet in diameter by 57 feet long, it has been modified to meet some new specifications that Carpenter's crew recommended. In addition to daily working dives around the exterior of C-Lab 3, several bounce dives are being made to depths as great as 800 feet. At such depths, the waters are dark and cold. Visibility is nil. Scorpion fish are everywhere. Communications are primitive. In spite of such hazards, Carpenter is optimistic. He says, I know that we have the best equipment available. But more important are the people involved. I have personally worked with most of them, and they are the best diving team I could ever hope for. I have every reason to believe that the entire 60-day project will come off without a hitch. So they're going from their 600 feet, they're bopping down to 800. Yeah, they're basically doing a 200-foot dive right. and coming back up to the surface at 600 feet. Well, it's a little bit different because you've got, you know, it's like the ratio of 33 feet to the surface versus going the same 33 feet from, say, 200 to, you know. Yes. Good point. Good point. Kind yep. of thing. Um, so yeah, just looking at those, feet, yeah. They're, at 600 feet, they're in 19 atas. Yes. And then they go to they go down to 800 feet. Five, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, yeah 25. It's 25 atas at 800 feet. So... So basically, it's a 20% change. Yeah. One-fifth versus one-half up at the surface, going from 33 feet to the surface. Right. So it, they it, probably don't have to do really any decompression. It's it's not right. It's a, it's a huge difference than going from 200 feet 
up to zero feet. Exactly. Right, like exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, it's seven times the pressure change versus the 600 to 800 or 800 back up to 600, I should say, which is only a one fifth of the, the pressure. I guess what we're getting at, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because I had some, I had some guy texting me on Instagram messaging me. He's a listener. Okay, cool. Over the weekend, they were discussing that the change from 33 feet to the surface, it's, it's more critical, you know, losing your buoyancy closer to the surface than it is losing your buoyancy at the bottom and traveling that same distance, you know, that's say 100 feet or whatever. So I was trying to explain to him, it's good just not to lose your buoyancy. But, <laughs> right. Yeah. But if you're going to lose it, it's better to lose it from yeah. 99 so, up to 66 right. than so it was, is from 33 to zero. Right. I was trying to explain to him and show him that, you know, it's just Boyle's Law and it's the math. And if you do the math, you'll see it's two to one, you know, the 33 feet to the surface. It's the only reason I was bringing it up with this. Going going down to 800, I was thinking, well, are they going to have to do any deco at all? But probably, no, they probably just went right back up to 600 and no big deal. Yeah, because, well, you go from 20, so 20 addas. Yeah, nine, if you want no, to round it, it's 19.2 so to... 20 addas to 40 addas, you would be doubling the pressure. Right, so 40 and 40 addas would be... Is 1,287 feet. Right. So the equivalent of going from roughly 600 feet to almost 1,300 feet right. would be the equivalent of going from the surface to 33 feet. Right. So 600 to 800, yeah, is, is probably like nothing. Nothing. Yeah. yeah as when far that, as decompression That fraction goes. of pressure is not that big of a deal, right? I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it would be. Well, let me, let me figure it out real quick while you're... Yeah, yeah. So... If preparation is any criteria, Carpenter's prediction should certainly prove sound. Every man and piece of equipment involved in C-Lab 3 has been thoroughly checked and tested. In a series of simulated dives inside the high-pressure chamber of the Navy's experimental diving unit, last February, five C-Lab aquanauts established a new simulated depth record by remaining at depth equivalent of 825 feet for a period of 48 hours. Two of the five... Fernando Lugo and Don Risk simultaneously established a second depth record by diving to a simulated depth of 1,025 feet. There, they sustained pressures of over 470 pounds per square inch, or a total of about 634,850 pounds. Wow, they're strong. <laughs> What were you looking up? I was just trying to calculate what it would be. It, it's equivalent, basically, from going like from twenty-five feet to the surface. Okay, I got you. That's what I was trying to show it, like something anybody could relate to. Yeah, I got you. So no, going from eight hundred to six hundred is equivalent to going from twenty-five feet to the surface. So yeah, basically, as far as a change in pressure, relative pressure around you. So if you are saturated, like we are saturated to the one atmosphere, they were saturated to. 19.2-ish, yeah, atmospheres. So they would go bop down to 25 and then bop back up to 19. And that change is only about a, a 25% change. So Because oh, that guy on the, on the surface, right, he's doubling the pressure in 33 feet of water. Right. right. He doesn't double it again until he hits 99 feet of water, right. 30 meters of water, right? Yeah. He doesn't double it again until he hits... 230 feet of water. Right. Mm -hmm. 
and you keep doubling those addas. You keep adding those addas. So, so again, for so going from nineteen to twenty-four, it's hardly this, anything. Yeah, it's not a doubling at all in the big in the big picture. Right, a doubling. He'd have to go from yeah nineteen to thirty-eight atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff, people. The new depth records demonstrate the feasibility of planting future sea labs at even greater depths. With such awesome prospects in sight, you may well ask, where will it all end? That must remain a matter of conjecture. So long as man must depend upon gaseous breathing mixtures, he must ultimately reach a depth at which his body can no longer tolerate the physiological effects of the great pressure. However, if the dream of an artificial gill that would permit man to breathe oxygen direct from the water ever becomes a reality, there is no end in sight. Man will not stop until he has conquered the greatest depths of the ocean. Meanwhile, Destroyed the greatest depths. <laughs> till it looks like Detroit. <laughs> Man will not stop until there is a McDonald's <laughs> at the greatest depths of until the sea floor. we have some youth gangs and graffiti down at 33,000 feet. I will not rest in there until there's a goddamn drive through <laughs> McDonald's. In an ATM. Um, this just in. Starbucks <laughs> is currently building. Now you know why they had that little mermaid as their symbol. <laughs> right. They, they were, they were they, people don't know this, but they actually funded, helped fund. <laughs> Meanwhile, C-Lab 3 is firmly anchored to the ocean floor, an outpost of civilization in our last frontier. It is a moment of the past efforts of men like George Bond and Walter Mazzone who made it all possible. Last but not least, it is a symbol of hope for all mankind, for the wealth of the oceans may soon be ours. It's mine, mine, all oh mine. It's mine. <laughs> and we won't share it with anybody. No, man, not in these days. Like, <laughs> like the Russians, <laughs> their, the Cold War was in full swing. You know, they're... Uh, well, Vietnam they're, was just kicking. Well, Vietnam was kicking off. Yeah, wars were, are. Yeah, they're uh, spread of communism. Oh, yeah, there was no. Uh, if, if you didn't have stars and stripes, I don't think you were on the team, and uh, you weren't getting. Uh, you weren't getting your your cut of this. Yeah, it was just like sticking a flag in the moon when they got there to say, "Yeah, it's ours. We were here first. Yeah, but in the old days, you know, somebody else would come and take your flag, stomp on it, and and kill everybody that was involved, and now it's ours. What you gonna do about it? You know, well, and basically nothing's changed. <laughs> I want to tell you, nothing's that's changed. A good, that's good. You're, you're right because they're doing the same thing now with Mars. <laughs> Everybody's targeting <laughs> who's gonna give me the first. We one. We were but, there first, so it's all ours. Yeah, yeah. Holiday Inn is just. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I bet those are the top secret talks right there. Is we're taking bids. So with C Lab, they finally got this beast of a of a little hotel for these guys down on the bottom 610 right. feet of water off of san clemente island and off of california do they talk about how they anchored it in there they weighed it down oh it's just weighted eh? i weight. thought they yeah, would yeah. Uh, bolt it well down that was the uh, that was a point of discussion and so it's not bolted into the floor mm -hmm. it was down there it was weighted down with tens of thousands like of pounds a of, lot of lead weights <laughs> that's a lot of <laughs> shot weight baggies <laughs> you got to imagine though because for those who don't know it's everything is buoyed up by its its volume right that's how buoyancy works and every one one cubic foot buoys up 
like I think seawater is sixty four pounds of seawater is right. is yeah. uh, and it's sixty two point four I think for freshwater. If my memory serves. Me. Anyway, the long story short is to make something that weighs more than sixty two point you know sixty four pounds per cubic foot it has to weigh you know even if it it is close to sixty four pounds. That's just neutral just makes buoyancy. It neutral. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't so, let it sit yes. still on the bottom with uh, with any right. That's why you got to use lead. But even lead is when you really think about it, isn't all that heavy. You know, it it is, but it isn't. In other words, you're gonna need a big volume of lead. Oh yeah, to keep that down there because that thing, even though it weighs a bunch, it occupies a bunch of volume because it's hollow. For the most part, right? Right, yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. it's gonna want to, it's gonna want to float up. Uh, yeah, they're pumping it mean, full of helium. Yeah. Oh, well, it's gonna float <laughs> right the hell out of there. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing feat of engineering, no doubt right. about. You know. So CDEB three had a couple of technical difficulties along the way. Originally, it was supposed to launch in 1967, but they had some uh, issues with design. Uh, they had some equipment failures and some problems with containing all the helium that was going to be in this environment, right? Because, I mean, the, the O2 level at this point is going to have to be so low. I mean, remember, it was like 4% back in C-Lab 2 when they were in 200 feet of water. But now at 19 Adas, like if you're going to keep... Let's let's assume I don't know for sure, but let's assume you're going to keep the uh, the PPO two at the same, which was I think twenty seven percent is where they were keeping it. Mm-hmm. That gives you a an O two level in the gas that they're breathing below two percent of the the total volume, right? At least below, yeah. I mean, you've got to keep it semi low if you're down there for that long time. Yeah, I mean you're in nineteen Adas. Right, so I mean, if you want a a PPO two of 0.27, and you're 19 atas, you're looking at 0. 0.014, 1.4 percent. Yeah, boy. Oh, two. Yeah. yeah. Right, like six, 19 atas, roughly. Like, so if if you were breathing five percent, five percent O2 at the surface, that's the equivalent of almost breathing pure 100 percent O2. Oh, down, yeah. Right, down at that depth, mm-hmm. right? Which is why we can't have that, right? No, so we got to cut deep. that O2, got to keep cutting that O2 percentage down. And that deep, you're, you're dealing with a fraction of a percent. Right, so if it goes off even a little, it has a huge effect on you. If it's even off, you know, a 0.1%, that starts to have an effect. A, a big effect, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then with all the helium that was in being such a light gas, this did is they, where they were did having they give issues. you the mix? I, have, I haven't seen the oh, mix okay. of the new one. I'm just curious if they also maybe use some hydrogen. I mean, I know hydrogen is even better than helium, but it's hard to work with because of its well, here's volatility. The, so they started having issues yep. right away with the helium in the tank. Oh, really? Leaking. Yeah. So the well, gas hard, was yeah. leaking out. So they're having an issue with... You can have that with scuba tanks, you know, because the molecules, are, I guess, are so small that they can leak out. Yeah, over time, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were certainly having that issue with this. Yeah. Like visible, just the gas just bubbling out of the unit. Oh, wow. When they got there. Hmm. Well, that's a bummer. Was it it as expensive as it is now? (laughs) Would be my question. You'd be just watching dollars. (laughs) Ah, 
be crying. It was expensive back then, but nowhere near yeah. what it is right <laughs> now for a for a bottle of helium. So I I did a quick calculation on uh, the lead. If you if anybody cares, because lead it says lead. Anybody? Yeah, anybody? 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 <laughs> uh, I've got to know. Lead surprisingly it wasn't as much as I thought it would be, but it still is a lot of lead. Anyway, lead is about uh, seven hundred and eight point zero six pounds per cubic foot. So one cubic foot of lead is seven hundred and eight ish pounds, right? Versus one cubic foot of seawater is sixty four pounds. So you do have a big advantage using with, you know, with to using lead that, to yeah. displace it. Yeah, okay. Right. So they had about fifty. That thirty five thousand pounds of lead is about 50 cubic feet. To me, this is the real like work of trying to do C-Lab, is overcoming all of these obstacles like breathing gas, like the buoyancy of a giant hollow tube, basically, right? Right, right. How you're going to keep it down there. Well, remember when we did the, uh, the episode about the Canadians doing the ice eh? diving when they had their little spid... Right, that they tried to anchor into the right, and it <laughs> right. wasn't going like, to happen. Ain't going to happen, yeah. man. And they just ended up floating it on on the under the ice. Under the yeah. ice, you know, it's tough. It's tough stuff. So in it, I would have just anchored it on, underneath onto the ice underneath. You know, you don't well, have to they, keep it. Well, sunk. that's what yeah. they ended up doing. Well, that's what it would have done yeah. in the first place. I should have been on that team. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the the issues that pushed the project back, and then they had more issues with the. ETC, their personnel transfer capsule, okay. which would take the divers, you know, to and mm-hmm. from lab. That's that's that thing I was I was thinking of. So, and then um, originally they were thinking putting Sea Lab three in four hundred and thirty feet of water, and then ended up changing it to six hundred. Why not? Which again further delayed the plans of of getting this thing underwater. Now, if we look back to Ben Hellworth's book, Sea Lab, in the chapter titled The Dam Hatch, he tells us about the early evening of February 15th. A rain-swept Saturday. A barge crane lowered the 300-ton habitat to its place on the bottom, 610 feet below the surface. The process took three hours but was largely uneventful. A credit to the experienced gleaned from previous trials and errors. Sea Lab 3 was painted a traffic light yellow with the name U.S. Navy Sea Lab on either side and on each end of the tank. Two symmetrical sections, each 12 feet square and almost 8 feet high, were added to the underbelly at each end of the cylindrical habitat, creating an arch-shaped two-story structure nearly 40 feet tall. One of the new sections would serve as a marine observation room. The other was the diving station with an entry hatch. The station was the foyer where the aquanauts would have ample space for donning and doffing wetsuits and diving gear. On the outside, in between the two new additions that formed the base of this golden arch, a block of ballast tanks was suspended as part of a novel anchoring system. The idea was to lower the tanks all the way to the bottom while the lab maintained just enough buoyancy to float a few feet above. Regardless of any unevenness on the ocean floor, the lab could be made level, so no more Tilton Hilton. Nice, smart. So Hellworth mentions that the the lab was leaking bad, that the helium-rich artificial atmosphere was bubbling out at an alarming rate. And they, they had thought about just raising... Sea Lab up, 
mm-hmm. and uh, fixing it back on the surface and, and basically starting all over again. And, uh, you know, being that it was 600 feet underwater, it's not like they're just going to send a diver down right. to go fix it. No. And shoot back up. So they need to do something more. Yeah, that would have been an undertaking for a dive operation. Of course, they could do it. I mean, they had they had been doing it. So they ended up on February 16th. They took the old personnel transfer capsule and dropped it in. Inside it were Bob Barth, 38 years old, who had been promoted to a warrant officer, and Barry Cannon, the able 33-year-old civilian electronics engineer from the first C-Lab 2 team. They were the ones chosen to get inside the habitat and find and fix the leaks. The lowering took almost an hour, and long before the PTC reached its destination, about 20 feet from the bottom, the foursome inside had been chilled to the bone. Their capsule was acting as much like a refrigerator as an elevator. Its electric heater was out of order, which might have been bearable, especially to a band of divers accustomed to inhospitable conditions, but a deflector was also missing on the carbon dioxide scrubber, and it blew what felt like an unrelenting Arctic wind. Helium further sapped everyone's body heat, and the divers' standard neoprene wetsuits, compressed and thinned under pressure, provided little warmth. They all felt cold to the core. Barth was sure he had never been so cold. So they still haven't gotten this thermal protection thing down. Right, which is going to prove very bad. Very shortly. Bad, yes. Just going to the depths we go to, it gets taxing, even even in a dry suit. Well, and, and the, it's one of the biggest factors, at least for me, that I take into consideration. And there's, a, there's a careful balancing act that goes because right. as much as you're trying to stay warm, uh, getting too warm before you get in the water, True. You like, start sweating, uh, you start yeah. sweating, and, and that mm-hmm. that ends up costing you later on in the dive. And you've got that that moisture inside the suit. That's... Oh yeah, that killed me last weekend. I had some a damp, uh, a moist. Yeah, I pulled my so you know after all the complaining because my dry suit undergarments didn't smell as nice as you like them to. So I've been washing them every time I dive almost now. Thank you for that. It, we it's all not th- that we bad. Thank you. Listen, back in my day, it was a badge of honor <laughs> to have a smelly undergarment because it, of it showed that you were diving all the time. <laughs> you were diving all the <laughs> to time. To have nobody want to sit next to you on the, on the dive deck. <laughs> anyway, I pulled it out of the dryer right before I was leaving, and it was still a little damp. Not Not much, but just a little. And even that little tiny dampness when I got down to the bottom of the quarry. Oh, yeah, so you drop into you drop 39, from, uh, 39 yeah. degree water. Yeah. I was Ooh. I was like, okay, I'm getting cold. After about 20, 25 minutes, I was going, okay, let's let's go up a little. Finally hit the thermocline, but not till like twenty five feet. Right. It wasn't yeah, it's cold. The quarry's cold this this year. I don't know what the hell. Of course the weather's been a little it's it's been weird. a weird weird summer. And yeah, it's a climate change it's is a, gonna get us. It's a harsh <laughs> thermocline. Yes. You know, yeah. It's not that Oh, you could see it. Yeah. I mean, it was vivid, the 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 little heat heat rays. Whatever you want to call those things. Barth and Cannon dropped fins first through the hatch in the floor of the PTC and through the short trunk. They landed on the cage, a box made of steel mesh containing a winch motor and an anchor that could be used to secure the PTC to the bottom. The cage hung a few feet underneath the PTC, like a basket under a hot air balloon, so that its top doubled as a stoop. The water was cold in the mid-40s of Fahrenheit. 
With their umbilicals trailing behind them, Barth and Cannon swam over to the lab. Along its 60-foot length were various valves, clamps, and vents to check and adjust as part of the unbuttoning procedures for parking the lab on the seabed. And they're in a wetsuit, right? Yeah. See, just think about that, though. The compression down there, 20 at us, 19 point whatever. Anyway. Right. You know what, a, you, you need what a it does inch, at 100 feet, yeah, you need a six much inch less thick 600 feet. Yeah. You were in a 7 mil? No, this is a 7 <laughs> inch. <laughs> you get a 7 inch just to get, yeah, get it down to like a 3 eighths. One of Barth's jobs was to blow the skirt, <laughs> which, which meant releasing overpressure from inside the lab to create a little air pocket, like a porch, just below the hatch of the dive station, one of... The two new sections added to the lab's underbelly. Standing a couple of steps up a ladder, Barth turned a valve to blow the skirt, then yanked a few levers to unlock the spring-loaded hatch, a heavy steel square of about four feet. With a good shove, the hatch should pop open, but it wouldn't budge. Barth banged haplessly on the hatch, succeeding only in bruising his hands. At that point, he and Cannon had been in the water about 12 minutes each working as quickly as they could through the separate unbuttoning checklist. It seemed to Barth that his buddy should have rejoined him by the hatch by now. Concerned, Barth left the hatch and swam around the habitat looking for him. All the while, Barth's breathing rig was giving him trouble. He found himself huffing and puffing hard, and something didn't feel right. The water was dark, though much clearer than they had expected. Cannon was nowhere to be seen, and Barth was beginning to feel uneasy about being alone on the ocean floor, unable to open the hatch, unable to communicate with anyone, unable to swim for the surface, wondering where the hell his buddy went, and why such difficulty breathing. He swam for the PTC and felt as though he might black out before he reached it. It's got to be a little nerve-wracking. Oh, yeah. No kidding. (laughs) That's an understatement. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, not knowing where your, your buddy is for a minute or so. Right. In 30 feet of water. Right. Now think about it. 600 feet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, 130 feet yeah. of water, it's bad. You know, yeah. 600 feet of water. And you're freezing. And your gas is funky. You yeah, don't know what and, the hell's going know, on. You're starting to feel weird. Yeah. You know how critical we get if we're planning a dive to yeah. 150 feet. About yes, the, the accuracy news. of the gas. Yes. 200 feet, how you critically, it's, even more how critical mm, you're about every gas you're breathing. 600, 600 feet, feet, you're breathing, and you're like, I don't feel so good. Yes, it wouldn't take much. It, it and, would, then, and the CO2 buildup from him working. Right, exactly. you got to be flushing now, that helmet now, out. Think of they're in the helmet. Your, yes, they are. Yeah. They're, breathing, they're breathing on and these the Mark, Mark 9s. Or Mark 9s Mark, now. Mark 9 units now. Okay. Who's uh, this Mark guy that's made all these <laughs> diving helmets? I want to meet him. Unbeknownst to Barth, Barry Cannon had experienced a similar shortness of breath a few minutes earlier. And I was, he and just was, went up. He, 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 he's he like, he's like, going up. I'm going to go look noise. for my partner. <laughs> Remember the protocol for hey, Patty. I ain't blowing the skirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he bailed. He's already back at the PTC where he had popped up through the hatch in the floor with a dazed look on his face, they said. He was breathing like a runner who had just sprinted the last mile of a marathon. Blackburn and Reeves hauled him up through the liquid-looking glass and into the cramped capsule. Um, Would you be a little pissed off that your buddy didn't say, hey, I'm getting the fuck out? <laughs> yeah, you, I, well, I You're certainly like, Come would. on, man. But I, I think... Uh, Maybe he didn't 
he was just confused. Confused and yeah. a little panicky yeah. and you're, you're freaking out. Do you stay and continue on the job and help your buddy and probably make that worse? Right. I think he had to some sort of... Uh, just make a, uh, a management decision. Yeah, like, like I got to go. get the... Mm-hmm. Get the blanket, blanket. GTFO. So, so Barth finally gets back in and is like mumbling and, and yelling something apparently. But again, uh, they were saying they he, they were hard. It was hard to understand because they were breathing oh, a gas mixture that was more than ninety percent helium. Talking would have been a uh, a feat, a challenge to understand each other. So topside, they were monitoring the uh, the cameras while these guys were all just down in that PTC, basically freezing their asses off. And then, wonder what kind of um, selection process they had to undergo to go to this, to be selected for the C-Lab project. Oh, well, remember Scott Carpenter was saying that it was very yeah. detailed, rigorous but I'm, screening I'm, process. Yeah, I'm just curious because I don't know if you've ever seen the Navy experimental dive unit stuff, like some of the stuff that they've done to the to the NIDU guys, but they basically put them in ice water in a Speedo and have them exercise a little bit. But these guys are, you know, and they have all the wires and everything hook up, hooked up to them. But these guys are just visibly, you know, turning blue and shaking, and they just keep going and going till they, you know, pass out kind of thing. So they finally ended up just bringing them back up. Yeah. The so whole kit and caboodle. The, well, they brought and the PTC. The, the, yeah. In the PTC. So they brought yeah. these four guys back up to the surface because they were too cold to be able to do anything. So And they put them in a deck decompression chamber. Correct. Okay. Was everybody all right uh, after that? He says, uh, one by one, they climbed down through the short connecting trunk into the deck decompression chamber below a horizontal cylinder, 24 feet long with a bathroom, a couple of bunks, and just enough headroom to stand upright. The contrast in temperature as they entered the chamber was so great, it felt as though they were dropping into a blast furnace. Now, he mentions in here that on the opposite side of the continent, in the Caribbean waters, as clear and balmy as the Red Sea, things were going much more smoothly on the first day of Project Tektite 1, an undersea habitat run by the Office of Naval Research, Sea Lab's former lead agency, along with NASA and the Department of the Interior. The $2.5 million project's duration was to be 60 days, the same as Sea Lab 3, but Tektite was not as deep. Or was expensive. It was a lot more fun, I bet, too. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, they were only like 40 feet down. Similar to Cousteau's early trial, they were saying. Mm-hmm. In Caribbean, 80-degree water, I bet. Yeah. A direct swim for the surface was unlikely to kill anyone in there. Right, So much easier environment. Not, they're, not, they're not as breathing. much risk they're at not all. breathing yeah. a helium atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Decompression, you know, even though they were saturated, you know, decompression there would take like a day compared to a week Mm -hmm. for the the divers in Sea Lab to get back to the surface. So finally, on Monday, September 17th, they dropped the divers back down again in the PTC. The PTC blowers again chilled them with an unrelenting Arctic breeze. Barth put a foul-weather jacket over his head and shared a blanket with Cannon. They all felt even colder than they had on the first ride down. By the time they reached the bottom, they were shaking badly. It was 4.30 in the morning, and they had been sealed inside the frosty PTC for more than an hour. The water was surprisingly clear, and though the PTC's little portholes, they could catch glimpses of the bubbling lab, lit up like a monument in a desert town square after nightfall. 
Barth and Cannon, shaking like the others, were eager to get hold of the hot water hoses and hook them up to their Wiswell suits. They pulled open the hatch in the floor of their pod and reached down to grab a jury-rigged hoses outside, but out of the hoses came only a cool trickle. Without hot water, their <laughs> loose-fitting suits would afford less protection from the cold than the standard wetsuits. Oh, yeah. Those things, the hot water suits, like the one I wore was like two, two, two sizes too big for me. So, and the water was about 38. 39 degrees i jumped in froze my ass off the water comes in and it's supposed to surround you but the the heated water will rise right so you're constantly as you're working you're constantly trying to get your cold parts into the (sighs) highest part so and if it's not with the hot water in it it's immediately cold and it's 38 degrees or whatever it was it was cold Anyway, the long story short is you're constantly manipulating, and if you'd only had cold water going in there, you're just basically in a speedo. Right. Right? You're just, you're cold. Just think about that for a minute. That's, but there's also, with those hot water suits, there's a calculation you have to make for the depth and the temperature at the bottom for the, for the heater up at the surface, because it gets pumped from the heater down, and that heater's a mother. It's, it's hot. So you calculate it out. It's so many degrees per foot and so many d- degrees over the bottom temperature. So you get you may be pumping water that's 200 plus degrees down to these guys by the, the, well, time, the time they it get it. Right. Now it's 600 feet. I don't know what the calculation is, but it's got to be super hot. Even boiling, hot even boiling water. So they might have to put some kind of chemical in it to raise the, t- the boiling temperature so that they can get a three or 400 degree water down to the 600 feet where it's maybe 90 degrees, right? Right. You yeah, understand yeah, yeah. how that works. So those are the things you've got to overcome with that, that depth. That's crazy, man. With their umbilicals trailing them like garden hoses, Barth and Cannon swam the rest of the way to Sea Lab 3, another 30 feet down to the bottom. Cannon split off from Barth, apparently to check on something else before swimming to the hatch. Barth went straight to the hatch, as Mazone had instructed, to give it another try. Watching on a TV monitor, those in the command van on the Elk River saw Barth swim into view, step up to the short ladder, and push on the hatch. The recent flooding had broken the seal. The skirt was still blown, and with the plan to coordinate a drop in the lab's pressure, Barth should be able to get in this time. Barth gave it a try, but the dam hatch wouldn't budge. In training, Barth had found that a little extra leverage could help pop a stubborn hatch, and he had a crowbar installed nearby, just in case. Everyone watched the topside TV monitors and saw Barth swim off screen. They figured he was going for the crowbar this time. Fatigue and frayed nerves contributed to a subdued tension, as did conflicting opinions as to what they should be doing topside as they watched Barth struggle with the hatch. Hold pressure steady. Shut off the gas. Allow some water to flood the dive station. Whatever suggestions were made by those present, Commander Tomsky had the final say. Gauges in the command van seemed to be showing that the pressure inside the lab and out had equalized. Given those readings, Tomsky could not understand why the hatch was still stuck. It took Barth about a minute to undo the two wing nuts holding the crowbar in place. A clumsy method, Carpenter thought. And another example of something that more time and money could have improved. No sooner had Barth grabbed the crowbar than he heard a strange grunting sound. At that moment, 
Blackburn and Reeves were startled by a yell, or maybe it was a scream, that came from somewhere outside of the capsule. Barth turned and saw Cannon on the opposite side of the habitat. At first glance, his buddy looked like a man jumping rope, legs pumping, arms jerking. Barth dropped the crowbar, and the topside commander saw him reappear on their monitors, but then swim away, stirring up silty clouds as he vanished into the Stygian darkness. Bond immediately sensed trouble. So he's down there working and, mm-hmm. and sees his buddy basically convulsing. Mm-hmm. Like they hear him yelping. Uh, and then he sees him going into this convulsion. Uh, he swims off camera. I, I, I saw a clip of this. It's, oh, it's really? pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so you see him swim away, and then you know, just kind of like in a cloud of sill because he's just yeah. a t- your typical working on the bottom kind of a guy, right. right? So he just like hurls himself over, pulling along the bottom of Sea Lab, grabs him, and then you can see him when you see the the video of this from some of those old. Uh, if you watch some of that closed caption footage, you see him kind of dragging. Uh, his buddy Cannon back into view, and he's like trying to shove a shove a, a, an open circuit regulator at him. There's bubbles just like shooting everywhere, trying to get him to to breathe. And he finally ends up just abandoning it, grabbing him and dragging him back to the capsule. In the pools of light cast from the habitat, Blackburn could see Cannon's mouthpiece floating over his head, emitting a stream of bubbles. Cannon was on his back, his shoulders resting on the lab's hefty main umbilical as if he were napping in a chaise lounge. As Blackburn swam down, he kept triggering the bypass to overcome the nagging sensation that he wasn't getting enough gas from his rig. Blackburn was six foot two, perhaps the biggest and fittest of the aquanauts, with a steely resolve born of the dangerous and delicate work of disarming underwater mines and bombs. Blackie first tried to force Cannon's mouthpiece into his mouth, but like Barth, had no luck. Swimming for the PTC, dragging more than 200 pounds of Barry Cannon and gear wasn't going to work. Blackburn began to feel short of breath, but managed to wrap one arm around Cannon, and with his free arm, grabbed hold of his own umbilical as if he were a rock climber, clutching a rope. As he kicked hard to propel himself and Cannon, he also pulled himself up the umbilical, which formed a steel hypotenuse to the PTC from where Cannon had been lying atop C-Lab's umbilical on the seafloor. Blackburn, his mind racing, wondered if the line was strong enough to support his weight and Cannon's. If the umbilical snapped, he and his unconscious body would sink back to the ocean floor doomed. So now they're just fighting and struggling to try to get this dude yeah, back. back to the, the PTC. PTC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The open hatch created a hole three feet wide in the floor, leaving only a narrow peripheral ledge to stand on, with one diver unconscious and limp as a rag doll. Blackburn held Cannon out of the way while Reeves and Barth shut and sealed the PTC hatch. Reeves had never seen a dead diver, but Cannon sure looked like one. Motionless, expressionless, eyes like glass. Reeves put his face next to Cannon's and sensed no trace of breath, nor was there a discernible pulse. They put an emergency mask over Cannon's nose and mouth that fed Cannon a fresh flow of their helium-rich gas. The mask didn't seem to help, so Blackburn started in with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Cannon's face was still warm. The mouth-to-mouth was getting a good exchange of gas into Cannon's lungs, a hopeful sign. In an awkward, circular space, Reeves got down on his knees to give Cannon external heart massage, while Blackburn kept up the mouth-to-mouth and Barth ran the PTC. Questions from topside were spilling over the intercom. What is your internal pressure gauge reading? What is your oxygen reading? 
Mazone donned a headset and was in constant communication and at the same time was getting the decompression chamber ready to receive them. Mazone and the others finally heard that the PTC hatch was shut and sealed. Take us up! Take us up! And Tomsky ordered the capsule raised. Within a few minutes, a chipmunk voice could be heard saying, Faster! Faster! But it might be an hour or more before the PTC was safely made into the chamber hatch. And then what? The decompression from 600 feet would take the better part of a week. Mm -hmm. Still, everyone in the PTC, except for Cannon, was shaking from the cold. They noticed a froth coming from Cannon's nose and mouth. Amid the cold confusion, they sensed that their friend had slipped away. They were all tired and shaky and not in the best condition to make medical assessments. But about 15 minutes after the PTC left the bottom, Captain Bond and the others heard a grim helium-spiked pronouncement. Barry Cannon is dead. Boom. And then basically a week-long ride. Yeah, with a dead body. dead body, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking about is what is that going to be like in that chamber? You you just have to sit and ride it out for a week. Yeah. And you, Rough uh, stuff. Yeah, you couldn't like eject him out. He'd blow up, you know. I think they kind of did. <laughs> really? <laughs> that's terrible. They put him into a, They put him into a body bag. And carried it into a bulkhead hatch. And then what? And then, um, since he was already dead, they basically just brought him up quick to sea level. But wouldn't the gas still come out of solution yeah. oh, and, yeah, like, yeah. bubble oh, out? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he was a mess. Gases bubbled, uh, causing significant puffing and bloating, they mentioned here. They probably were like, well, this would be a good experiment. So they... Uh, <laughs> They'll get something out so of it. So they did an autopsy on him, and... <laughs> Yeah, but he's so damaged from the ascent. So they said that his death was triggered by carbon dioxide poison. Yes. So it didn't take much. And they they later found that he didn't have any of the... um, His unit, they found, didn't have any barrel lime in it. And they had a bit of a... uh, They they were... Well, who was supposed to be doing that? Them or that? Well, back then you didn't check your own unit. Right. You just put it on in assumption. They still don't. It's just like, uh, you know, most people in the military don't pack their own chutes. Life support per- personnel does that. And it's the same thing with all your scuba gear and all that. Right, well, they never, they never released the name of who officially was in charge of that. But they do believe that there was a bit of conspiracy going on because there were some other issues along the way, too, that he was kind of sabotaged. And later they went to say so far as was it the they Air believe Force? that he was actually murdered. Really? Yeah. By? I wouldn't say. Partly because they Who was against this thing? The Russians is what they were thinking, is what what conspiracies, what conspiracists believe it was a Russian spy, possibly. But I think there was a little bit of a fear of that, you know, back in those days. uh, Well, yeah. It's always the Russians. It's still this day. (laughs) They always blame the Russians, Russians, isn't it? Yeah, right, right. Anyway, but also... You know, I think about how these guys worked and how they move underwater. You know, the Navy divers, they're they're all about just grunting through it versus the way we dive, like from learning cave diving and whatnot. And the way we dive now is being neutrally buoyant, streamlined, and a more efficient kicking than that, that flutter, which just uses large leg muscles and builds up a bunch of carbon dioxide real quick versus the way we do if if that wouldn't have helped a right, little bit right. but you know when if you he look had at no these other uh you know uh, co2 absorber right the other guy 
Barth, when he was carrying a back, you know, they were saying that he was very close to suffering a, a CO2 hit himself right. just from the, the work. Right. right. Let alone, uh, let alone Barry Cannon's issue of just not having anything to scrub the CO2 out. Right. He's right? just that breathing the CO2 right back Killed in. his ass mm-hmm. dead quick. Killed his ass. <laughs> uh, the other guy was dead. very close to having the issue just from his overexertion. Right. Getting him to the same point. Yeah, even having a CO2 being scrubbed, you're yeah. still you're still building it up faster than your body can get rid of it. Yeah, man, fascinating stuff. So that um that fatality basically shut down the program, mm-hmm. right? They they had they were having so many problems down there with the with the unit leaking. Uh they get these guys back to the surface and you know, from the HQ they go shut it down. Yeah, that hatch thing would have been pissing me. I just think about that like when things don't work right and you you're having to grunt through it underwater it's not good i mean putting in that extra effort at depth especially at 600 feet i mean you've worked at 100 feet you know what you know what it means you know to be working at 100 feet or 200 feet co2 builds up quick you can feel it immediately when you start really working at those depths 600 feet that's insane i had an issue with a student recently in 10 feet of water got a little nervous yeah a little panicky mm-hmm. started fighting and struggling in 10 feet of water mm-hmm. that led to a, a momentary CO2. complete loss of real cognitive thought yeah that's co2 right? man yeah that's why in, i mean in very shallow water and in very few seconds to get there well even 10 feet's gonna like you say and especially if you're not exhaling fully if you're not getting rid of it, you're just right. breathing it in like dead air space, just you know? Yeah. Enriching it. Exactly. As you go, making it worse your bodies. And worse. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. It happens quick. So, I mean, really at any depth, it should be something that's constantly on your mind. Well, this is why I push so hard about, you know, today's movement to teach less information, like understanding of what you're doing. That push in the mainstream scuba industry community and education community really kind of ticks me off because having an understanding of what's going on with your body, knowing that the CO2 is your drive for breathing, CO2 content in your bloodstream is what drives your urge to breathe. So as you build it up, you want to breathe faster, which actually works in reverse to getting rid of it at depth. Because you're working harder to breathe. Yeah. And that's where the whole deep air thing isn't so much the narcosis as it is breathing dense gas and not being able to move your CO2 out. You know, because that work of breathing gets so much more difficult when you're breathing at 100 feet. It's four times as dense. Right. And the the, yeah. the, the quick class and the, the lower right. standards really only sets the diver up down the road For when f- they get a little bit of confidence in themselves mm-hmm. of, oh, going deep isn't too bad. Oh, yeah, going, what's the big deal? Uh, what's the big deal? I can handle the narcosis. I, I, I bought the better fins yes. for this very reason. <laughs> yes, I got, right? I'm working and my ass off really, with these things. You, you when know. something does go wrong, you ha- you don't have that, that understanding technique, mm-hmm. understanding, and experience to fall back on. Or even to understand like, okay, this is what's going on. I'm building up CO2. That's why I'm needing to breathe so fast. I've got to stop what I'm doing. Right, and I've right. got to ascend a little bit. I've got to release that partial pressure of carbon dioxide. I've got to make my gas less dense so I can move it easier. And I've got to stop working. You know, get my buoyancy back, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, very cool. Well, hey, everybody. That was an awesome little look at the good old days of Sea Lab. 
thank you very much to Ben Halworth and this really fascinating book called Sea Lab, America's Forgotten Quest to Live and Work on the Ocean Floor. So Do yourselves a favor and get out there and, and try to find this book and uh, read it because we just read little excerpts, excerpts yeah. from it. You know, I mean, I was... You know, bouncing around, but it's it's a fantastic book with a ton of ton of great info and really exciting stories to read. Well, it's it's great to hear you know the history of how we got to where we're at. We started to learn about going deep, and I think that kind of bled into the recreational diving, learning about Sea Lab and what they were doing, to the point where we had technical diving, where we had divers who were pushing the recreational limits and fighting the mainstream scuba education industry but question was c lab like done after that they're like okay we're done, done. they shut yeah, it down other, and it went to any anything else after this um went to more went, like industrial com, yep, commercial yeah, yep. comex uh but yeah so it went to private sector and then they mm-hmm. say they say that there were some maybe some secret jobs that that the navy was the, doing. the navy yeah. was doing but well, officially sure the program was shut down well on the abyss they were breathing that liquid Fluorine, and then later they made the abyss, fluorine yes. or something. Yeah, but that was private sector. I do believe that wasn't. Ed Harris was awesome in that movie. <laughs> he did. Okay, everybody, big shout out to uh, our, our good buddy Dr. Nathan who uh, lent, lent me this book, book to nice. uh, to read. Um, Thanks, Nate. What Doc. seems seems like forever ago. <laughs> <laughs> I finally got finally got around to it, but. Thanks, Doc, for this, and uh, hope you guys enjoyed this one, and we will get back to you soon. Here, uh, sign my my logbook. Say hi to Gimpy for me. Love, what was that, Flipper, Flippy, Tuffy. Tuffy. Okay. That damn hatch. (laughs) That damn hatch. All right, everybody, until next week, see ya. Safe diving. It's too easy. It is. Well, I'm just thinking, do you do you think they did that on purpose? You know, a bunch of guys. Yeah, we'll call it blowing the skirt. What is this job gonna be called? (laughs) Blow the skirt? You get to blow the skirt.